So where do we find, or where do the findings of contemporary neuroscience fit within a Thomist understanding of the human person and the rational soul? I propose to address some of these issues and this very complex set of issues and only touch on a few of them by navigating through a number of interrelated issues. My overall aim is to respond to and correct some misrepresentations that are in the literature of Thomist accounts of the relationship between the brain and psychological phenomena. I do this by developing Aquinas' contention that in this life, um, our, our intellect and our other powers are always integrated with each other in, in, in a way in which um, uh, the, the way in which the noetic interactions with our sensory powers is deeply intricate and systematic, the kind of interface between them. And this is summed up nicely in Aquinas' claim that he often makes, but especially in the Prima Pars, Question 84, Article 7, about the way in which it's necessary for the intellect always to turn to the phantasms. What I want to do is develop and articulate a Thomist, a contemporary Thomist articulation of this idea. So some of the stuff that actually came up very nicely in the Q&A at the end of Dr. Fazer's talk are kind of handing off the baton nicely to some of the issues I want to look at in greater detail. But in doing this, we need to also appreciate the fundamental differences between a Thomistic hylomorphic understanding of the way in which the intellect, the senses, and the brain are integrated and interact, and the way in which this differs considerably from various emergentist or interactionist dualist accounts of the interaction um, of the causal connections between the mind and the brain. Because these dualist conceptions of mind-brain causation are so tempting, and they're so easy for our minds to just slip into them, both for defenders and critics of Aquinas, it's going to be important to distinguish them um, to some degree and make sure that we aren't falling into these conceptual fault lines. And, in the final part of the paper, I'm going to draw on the new mechanist philosophy of neuroscience to suggest how we might fill out the neuroscientific details of the Thomistic hylomorphic understanding of sensory powers as they're, con they're constituted from the organization of neurophysiological systems. This suggested complementarity is something I've defended in a greater detail elsewhere, so if you would like to see more of how this is filled out, because I'm only going to give a brief sketch of that here. But I'm going to be taking for um, granted this, this compatibility between the two of them. But once we see this compatibility, I think it, it, it deflates or it discharges the, the challenge to saying that Thomist anthropology is completely incompatible with neuroscience. This is meant to provide a suggestive but substantive account of how they're actually deeply um, compatible on one line of inquiry. With these settings set, let us take note of some presumptions that are necessary for our point of departure. First is I'm just going to be taking for granted something that's less contentious maybe for this audience, but it's very contentious elsewhere, sort of the full panoply of the Thomist hylomorphic understanding of the human being. Secondly, importantly connected to that hylomorphic understanding is these arguments for the immateriality intellect, sort of the arguments that Dr. Fazer just gave us. So both of those are important things that I'm taking for granted. And important to that is understanding the way in which immaterial, disembodied noetic operations and powers of the intellect and will, how these operationally interact with, but are also ontologically distinct from, the essentially embodied psychosomatic operations and powers of our external internal senses. Aquinas often will speak in contrasting terms, as you know, between intellect, fantasia, and sensation, and I'm going to often speak in contrasting terms of noetic powers and operations and psychosomatic powers and operations. Third is the last point, but for me has become a very important point to think about more critically as I've been trying to engage lots of rival approaches to the human person, that I can't just start with these assumptions. I need to start a few steps back and try to find some common ground and work into these theoretical systematic features of Thomas metaphysics and anthropology. It's important to recall that these rich and contentious explanatory factors are among the fruits arrived at by an extended theoretical inquiry. They're not the starting points of our understanding of human persons, but among the treasures of difficult and arduous investigations of the phenomenological, experimental, and ontological factors that comprise the objects, the operations, the powers, and the nature of human persons. We Thomists 
constantly need to remind ourselves that the anthropology presented in the later parts of the Summa Contra Gentiles Book 2, or from question 75 onwards in the prima pars of the Summa Theologia, or in various questiones disputata, that these are the hard-won inquiries that are already in the midst of issues pertaining to what Aquinas will often refer to as the priora quad nos, that which is more known in itself. Not even in his commentary on Aristotle's De Anima does Aquinas spell out in detail how we in fact move step by step from the priora quad nos, that which is more known to us, of our various and culturally idiomatic pre-theoretical wonders as well as practical inquiries about who we are and what we are, how do we move step by step from that into the basic theoretical conceptualization of human persons as an explanandum, something that needs to be explained. This explanandum requires an integrated plurality of ontological, biological, psychological, sociological, and for Thomas, ultimately theological, explanatory factors. And we need to come to grip with these later in order to understand who we are and what we are. Said otherwise, we might say, because Aquinas endorses the claim that all inquiries begin with what's more known to us, before arriving at inquiries into what's more known in itself, Thomas philosophical anthropology needs to know how to connect up its rich theoretical insights with a much bigger picture of human life. Wonder starts not with the rational soul, and wonder starts not with the brain. Wonder rather starts idiomatically in a variety of different existential registers by asking the basic questions that John Paul II articulates at the beginning of Fides et Ratio. Questions like, who am I? Where have I come from? Where am I going? Why is there evil? And what is there after this life? It's on the basis of our experiences as de developing dependent rational animals that we can affirm various anas truths, which are known quad nos, and then whatever quidas truths we come to know through inquiry about brains or about rational souls, these are all known quad, um, quad se. The rational soul and the brain is very important. These provide explanations for our experiences. We don't experience ourselves as having rational souls. It's an explanation we arrive at through our experiences. And the brain and the nervous system is not something that we obviously experience, but it's rather that enabling condition which we come to provide explanations for our experiences. But in making this distinction between the rational soul and the brain as explanatory factors for our experiences, it's important to recognize from Matoma's point of view, these are ty different types of levels of explanation, and we should see them as complementary rather than as competitive. So we're not trying to fill some one explanatory gap, one explanatory slot, where the brain and the soul are in competition. We understand these fundamentally as complementary explanatory features for our human experiences. But saying this much is already a very contentious, because there's many other approaches to thinking about psychology, thinking about the brain, which actually do understand them as fundamentally competitive rather than as complementary. And in particular, this is not universally endorsed by philosophers of mind. So briefly, I want to make some distinctions between the way in which philosophers of mind approach these issues and how those are very different from the approach of Thomas. It's easy to overlook the host of background disagreements which make it tremendously difficult for philosophers of mind to even understand and engage Thomas, and vice versa. This is because the rites of initiation into the relatively unified tradition of sophisticated inquiry that is analytic philosophy of mind. It requires a commitment to a conception of physical things and mental phenomena that's fundamentally incompatible with the hylomorphic conception of physical things endorsed by Thomists. These are a number of points that are um, recapitulating points that Dr. Fazer made as well. For analytic philosophy of mind in general, the physical is defined in a variety of ways but nearly all of them understand the physical in ontologically austere ways that typically hand off the ontological tasks of identifying what constitutes the physical to some present or future ideal theoretical physics. This vision of reality has no room for the highly stratified ontology of the physical world characteristic of Thomas' tylomorphism. 
which often concedes, or which, sorry, which does concede not only the reality of diverse physical and chemical phenomena, but also a host of biological and psychological realities and their numerous irreducible causal powers. These entities are not taken to be ontological, causal, or explanatory primitives in most conceptions of the physical that are taken for granted by philosophers of mind. So whereas most philosophers of mind concede the need for a causal, descriptive, explanatory monism, and hence the competitive nature of these different rival accounts, this is rejected by Thomism's descriptive, explanatory, ontological, and causal, and what I'm calling integrative pluralism. There's a, not just a plurality, there's an attempt to integrate the plurality through complementary accounts. So the Thomist needs to be self-reflectively clear from the outset that the disagreements they have with analytic philosophy of mind, it's not just with rival conceptions of human beings, it's with fundamentally different conceptions of physical things. And these different conceptions of physical things thereby have enormous implications for what they can later or, or cannot say about human beings. Thomas must realize that they cannot have a dog in the fight, or at least of many of the fights of analytic philosophy of mind, because Thomas are rightly, I think, unwilling to pay the price of entry. This doesn't excuse understanding deeply the sophistication of analytic philosophy of mind debates. It's just showing how much more difficult it is to really frame our debates and understanding each other. It's for these and related reasons, Thomas and analytic philosophers of mind frequently talk past each other in ways in which they're unlikely to notice. And here I'm going to bring up one challenge that has been made to some Thomists. One of the most articulate and influential versions of the challenge against Thomism from neuroscience has come from the other side of the Tiber by the Protestant thinker William Hasker. In his influential 1999 monograph, The Emergent Self, and many subsequent articles, including a recent 2013 exchange with John Haldane, Hasker has both developed his account of human beings as emergent persons and contrasted it with Thomas Tylomorphic anthropology, which he finds problematic for a number of reasons. Many of these problems, I think, have been adequately addressed by John Haldane and Brian Leftow and a few others. So I want to focus set on a different issue, and it's one that you'll find in, I think, the quote in your handout, the second half of Hasker's claim here that he says, the Thomas case for the existence of subsistent souls is weak. The main philosophical reason given for their existence is that the activity of reason has no material organ. He doesn't take up the kind of arguments that Dr. Fazer has presented here. So I, I, for a lot of reasons, I think that one, he hasn't adequately treated the Thomas terms on their own grounds, but also some of these other Aristotelian arguments haven't been considered either. But the issue I want to focus on is this next part. Unfortunately, this is one point at which it's very difficult for us to agree in the light of contemporary brain science. Eleanor Stump, for one, simply admits that the traditional Thomas view is mistaken about this. Hasker cites here Eleanor Stump's claim that, quote, Aquinas mistakenly supposes that the intellect is tied to no bodily, no particular bodily organ. This is not the first time Hasker's quoted Stump in supporting this objection against the Thomas position. And elsewhere in her book, Stump writes that Aquinas, quote, turns out to have been wrong in his view that the intellect knows, uses no bodily organ, end quote. I've been unable to find any argument or evidence cited by Stump to clarify this contention that we now know the intellect does not use a bodily organ. Hasker seems to think that, quote, the principal argument for such an immaterial soul has rested on the contention, now scientifically discredited, that there's no neural correlate for higher rational processes. This is, the, this is the issue I really want to focus on in this talk, this last claim about there's no neural correlate, no particular bodily organ for higher rational processes. There are two issues here. First, what is Aquinas' actual view? And second, has science actually discredited this view? As I said a second ago, Brian Leptow has presented a detailed response for why Hasker has misunderstood Aquinas' actual view and why it's not a neuroscientific inquiry, but the ontological nature of rational versus non-rational psychological phenomena that matters for determining this issue. And he also looks to some of the James Ross arguments to make some of these claims as well. What I want to develop in more detail are the reasons Thomas have for thinking their anthropology is not at odds with neuroscience. So let's, though, first briefly summarize some features of Aquinas' own doctrine. And here you might, you're going to want to flip to the very last page where 
there's not a very large image of, and I can't recall if this is from a 15th or 16th century um, illustration from a, um, one of Albert's, a reproduction of one of Albert's work. But we'll come back to that too. You're gonna have to flip back and forth some pages here, I'm sorry. But just have that beautiful image in mind. First to be clear, neither Aquinas nor Thomas deny that there are any bodily, brainy, or neural correlates for intellectual operations. But we do deny that the noetic operations of the intellect and the will are hylomorphically embodied in the way that psychosomatic operations and powers, of sens like sensation, are embodied. Aquinas claims in the Summa Theologia Prima Pars, question 76, article one, and here you have the quote, that rational soul of human beings is separated with respect to its intellectual power because the intellectual power is not a power that belongs to any corporeal argument or organ as the power of vision is the act of the eye. For intellectual understanding is an act that cannot be performed by a corporeal organ in the way that vision is exercised. But it is matter, but it is in matter insofar as the soul itself, to which the intellectual power belongs, is the form of the body and the terminus of human generation. Again, I'm not going to be treating the arguments for the immateriality and disembodiment of these noetic operations of intellect to will. I'm just going to be taking them for granted here. But even though these noetic operation and powers are immaterial and therefore disembodied, that does not mean that they don't interact with the psychosomatic operations and powers which are embodied in the nervous system. Indeed, Aquinas' view is that our intellectual operations as human beings systematically interact not with the body or not with the bodily organs, but with the powers of sensation and fantasia, which are hylomorphically embodied in various bodily organs. So I'm going to come back to this point over and over again. The intellect doesn't interact with the brain. The intellect interacts with psychological powers which are embodied in the brain. That's going to be a very key distinction throughout here. The most obvious instance of this thesis in Aquinas is his claim that the intellect is always engaged in a systematic interface with phantasms. In our present state of life as human persons composed of rational souls united to corruptible bodies, it's impossible for us to actually understand something without turning to the phantasms. Let us fill out both what Aquinas meant by the phantasms of fantasia, and then second, look at how we might develop this for our present inquiries in Thomist philosophical anthropology. Begin with Aquinas' division of the external and internal senses. So this is maybe on the second, first page of the handout. On the basis of formally distinct objects and operations, Aquinas, following the Aristotelian method, innovated with some things from Averroes and Avicenna and others, he distinguishes five external senses for the powers of vision, audition, olfaction, gustation, and tactility. And he distinguishes for us four internal senses. The sensus communis, which I'm just referring to as the gestalt sense, the imagination, the cogitative power, which he calls the estimative power in animals, and the power of memory. The gestalt sense enables our unified sensory experience of the formally diverse conscious operations that intentionalize the different primary objects and common objects of the external senses. Imagination enables our retention and representation of those per se sensibles that those external senses and the sensus communis um, apprehend. The cogitative power again, called the estimative power in non-human animals, and it has a number of other names when he's talking about it in relationship to its interface with the intellect, like the particular reason. This cogitative power enables our ability to concurrently perceive individual aspectual, actional, and affectional features of the objects we sense. So I'm making a stipulated distinction of perception is what we should describe as the activity of the cogitative power, and sensation is the activity of the external senses and the, and the sensus communis. But these are often occurring concurrently, cooperatively. These extra objects, these objects that belong to the cogitative power, Aquinas calls per accident sensibles. And if you want a detailed account of this, look at Aquinas' lecture on Danima, book two, chapter six, it's lecture 13. That's his, one of his most detailed treatments of this. For example, the example Aquinas gives in Prima Pars, question 78, article four, which is one of the other detailed places of this. He'll talk about how the way the bird is drawn to the straw, which it uses to build its nest, not simply because of any sensible qualities like its golden color or its flavor, 
but on account of its aspectual or actional features, which afford being useful for constructing a nest. A bird recognizes the aspectual and actional features in a non-linguistic, in a non-conceptual, and so a non-rational way. And in addition to these other three internal senses, Aquinas also posits the power of memory, which can retain these particular intentions, these peratched and sensible qualities under the aspect of the past. More recently, a number of philosophers and scientists, especially if any of you have read any of the literature in the embodied cognitive science or radical embodied cognitive science, who are very influenced by the American ecological psychologist James Gibson, a buzzword that they've derived from Gibson is the language of affordances. Affordances are very similar to what Aristotle means by peratched and sensibles. And Gibson here defines affordances as follows, and you have this quote on your handout as well. The affordances of the environment are what it offers the animal, what it provides or furnishes, either for good or for ill. Affordances are neither mere sensible qualities, nor do they require rational capacities for language or conceptualized identification. Rather, what's required are these abilities that we have in common with other animals that enable us to recognize individuals, as well as learn, but not think about, but deploy various rules or acquire sortals. If you've looked at the end of Aristotle's Posture Analytics, Book 2, Chapter 19, and Aquinas talks about this at length, there's this interesting passage where Aristotle talks about sensation, then memories, then experience, which is like a first universal before noose. And Aquinas sort of develops this at length in various ways. This is what I mean by this, this, this pre-rational capacity that animals have. And the reason why I'm making so much hay of all this stuff about this cogitative power, estimative power, is one, I was obsessed with it for a little while. And two, this is an embodied capacity that has extraordinary abilities, but is still preconceptual, still pre-linguistic, still pre-rational. And so we're going to find a lot of things in the experimental literature on other animals that's operationalizing very, very similar capacities which are embodied. So it allows us to really take seriously the extraordinary range of capacities that chimpanzees, corvids, um, cuttlefish, dolphins have but yet still have really clear distinctions found in Aquinas that distinguish these pre-linguistic, pre-conceptual, pre-rational abilities from the rational capacities in humans. So we can take serious all the animal, the claims about animal um, cognitive abilities, but yet still make sharp distinctions between how humans are a distinctive, unique kind of rational animal. When they perceive these sortals, or they come to acquire these sortals, or perceive these affordances, they allow them to discriminate not just individuals, but individual conspecifics, or other kinds of animals, recognize social hierarchies of alphas and other subordinate animals, that they can distinguish predators, they can distinguish prey, potables, edibles, that they can discriminate surfaces that are able to be walked on versus bodies of water that can be swam through, or swam through, um, or uh, different affordances for walking or climbing or landing on. It's in virtue of exercising this power of estimation or cogitation, along with memory, that animals are able to perform complex kinds of embodied, purposeful behaviors, but not intentional, that involve non-rational forms of associative learning, problem solving, and executive functions. What's key in Aquinas is that he maintains this cogitative power is able to participate and the rational competencies of the intellect, such that it merits even being called the particular reason. The cogitative power as particular reason works alongside the intellect as universal reason whenever we need to reason practically or reason theoretically about individuals that fall under common natures. And this is virtually always. In addition to these sentient cognitive powers, Aquinas differentiates the sensual appetites into the concupiscible and the irascible appetites, which is a detailed topic we can't address here. Aquinas maintains that all of these sensory cognitive and appetitive powers are embodied and hylomorphically in a variety of different bodily organs. And here I have a quote from, um, from Aquinas as well, which I'm not going to read, but you can see on your handout, just showing the way in which he articulates this distinction of embodied from disembodied powers. What I want to draw attention to here is the analogous way in which the soul is the substantial form of the body as a whole, and analogously, each of these cognitive and impetitive sensory powers, unlike the intellect and will, are attributed forms of their respective bodily organs. So accordingly, 
Aquinas often notes, he'll say that vision is the formal act of the organ of the eye, just as the way in which the soul is the formal act of the body. We can understand the other sensory powers and the organs in a similar way. And this is where the image on the last page comes in handy now. When it comes to the internal senses in the brain, Aquinas inherited the ventricular doctrine of the brain from Galen and Avicenna. And so also did later figures like Leonardo da Vinci and many others after him up until Descartes and Thomas Willis. Aquinas localized the gestalt sense in the imagination and the purported anterior ventricle of the brain. The cogitative power was put in the middle ventricle and the memory was taken to be the form of the posterior ventricle. Probably can't actually read the labels in, in there, but, and this isn't even actually Aquinas' division of them, it's, but it's, it's very similar to his division of the internal senses. This, this, this particular illustration owes some greater influence of Avicenna in a way that differentiates his view from Aquinas's. But according to Aquinas, the sensory powers which form the phantasms, which our intellect is constantly turned towards, are three powers, the imagination, cogitation, and memory. That is, the three internal sense powers that comprise what Aquinas calls fantasia. Note well, it's very important to recognize that when Aquinas speaks of fantasia and phantasms, he's not just referring to the power of imagination alone. He's referring to the concert operation of up to three powers, in some combination or other, of imagination, cogitation, and memory. And these can be exercised together in various ways to form phantasms, which are themselves comprised of the images of the imagination, the particular intentions of the cogitative power, or the memories of the memorative power. And it's the power of fantasia in its operations that involve the formation of these phantasms, which are hylomorphically embodied in the ventricles of the brain. That was Aquinas' view. Our noetic powers of intellect and will rely on these phantasms that are formed by fantasia for a host of different human operations, including, and not limited to, inquiry, learning, intellectual abstraction, and the application of theoretical understanding to particulars, judgments of truth, practical reasoning, and intentional action, as well as for the complex forms of rational harmonization of the coordinated actualization of our embodied sensory cognitive and appetitive powers, and motile powers. This rational harmonization is critical for the ability for us to form virtues, virtues that are embodied in the concupiscible and irascible appetites that requires a harmonization of fantasia as well as these appetitive powers. It's these various systematic interactions between the noetic powers of intellect and will with the psychosomatic powers of sensation, fantasia, and sensual appetites that's implicitly related to Aquinas' pregnant characterization of the need for the intellect's conversio ad phantasmata. This systematic interaction and dependency between noetic and psychosomatic powers is such that any injury caused to the bodily organs that material undergird the embodied psychosomatic powers of fantasia, these injuries not only impede the operations of fantasia, but they also thereby inhibit our noetic operations. Said otherwise, and using some more contemporary terminology, if there's serious damage to any of the parts of the brain that hylomorphically embody the cogitative power, and if this results in the human person becoming incapable of exercising the cogitative power, then the human person will also be incapable of practical reasoning. Why? It's because, as I said before, practical reasoning requires a concert operation of powers. It requires the use of the intellect as universal reason, along with the coordinated exercise of the cogitative power as particular reason. So even though damage to the brain does not directly affect the intellect, damage to the parts of the brain that embody the powers of fantasia, which are necessary for the normal operations of the intellect, do indirectly inhibit the, person's, the human person's exercise of both their psychosomatic and their noetic powers. Consequently, whenever the cogitative power's particular reason is exercised, there will be stereotypical activities in the parts of the brain that hylomorphically embody the cogitative power. Even so specific as 
whenever I recognize Father Thomas Joseph White and I'm perceiving him and recognizing him, there's not just going to be stereotypical ways of intellect and cogitative power integrating, but there's also going to be stereotypical parts of the embodied system of the cogitative power, parts of the nervous system, that will be stereotypical patterns that will be recognized for that kind of fine-grained discrimination. Types of fine-grained discriminations and activities and pattern firings going on, say, in parts of the visual cortex, sometimes what's called the fusiform gyrus and other places, that you'll be able to pick up with fMRI and maybe be even able to distinguish that from when I'm recognizing Dr. Phaser. I've left out many of the details of Aquinas' account of the way in which fantasia is hylomorphically embodied in the brain and how Aquinas understands the systematic interactions between the intellect and fantasia. But even this outline of his view is sufficient to correct Hasker's mistaken account of Aquinas' position. Aquinas' position is that intellect and will do not inform bodily organs, while sensory powers, imagination, cogitation, and memory, they do inform sensory organs, along with, as we would say, distinct neural and glial networks in the brain. So contrary to Hasker, Aquinas' denial of the hylomorphic embodiment of the powers and operations of intellect and will um, does not entail that there are no neural correlates of rational poetic operations for Aquinas. What these correlations might consist in is a topic we shall briefly touch on in the final section. I'm just gonna summarize the next section due to time constraints. Um, my own time constraints is writing too much. Um, on the handout, you have a basic division of the difference between emergentist accounts and hylomorphic accounts. Emergentist accounts can be either accounts of ways of distinguishing different kinds of properties, or they can also be thought of in terms of emergent substance dualism. And so, Emergentism basically starts with the physicalist conception of the physical world, and there are probably physical substances with physical properties. And somehow or other, the organization or the systematic arrangement of these physical properties is sufficient to generate or produce emergent mental properties, or even maybe an emergent mental substance, which you might call a person or a self or a soul. And these mental properties or mental substance are themselves actually causally efficacious back on the physical systems that produce them in the first place. But it's a type of extrinsic causal interaction. The physical system is organized in a certain way, maybe it's the brain, and that generates or produces an extrinsic mental property or mental substance, and then the mental substance has causal efficacy and acts back down on the brain and then causes perhaps some activity in the brain which causes then another kind of action. So if I have the desire to run across the room, that's gonna be a mental action, a mental event, and that mental event might cause my motor cortex, so the mental event is something separate from my brain, from my motor cortex, and it acts as an extrinsic, probably efficient cause on my motor cortex, and then my motor cortex in turn acts as a physical, efficient cause on parts of my bodily limbs and causes me to move across the room. The hylomorphic picture is very different from this one. I'm not trying to critique this other one, I'm just trying to distinguish the other one from this. The hylomorphic account we've provided so far is one in which the embodied psychosomatic powers, they're not generated by the organization of the brain. We need to take a step back and think about the rational soul. The rational soul is the reason for why the physical system is organized in the way that it is. So it's not, as the emergentist account has it, that you have a physical system already. That physical system somehow through its physical properties is, becomes organized such that it then generates something mental, like a soul, or a mind, or a person. On the hylomorphic account, the rational soul is what brings about the organization of the matter in the first place. And that hylomorphic organization of the matter in the first place is what grounds the different types of biological powers, chemical powers, psychological powers, both the psychosomatic ones that are embodied in the brain, as well as the rational powers. So the explanation for all the powers doesn't start with the organization of the physical system where the organization is something that comes before the mind. Rather, the rational soul is what explains the formal actualization, organization, identity of the physical system in the first place. And that's the reason for all the powers that you find. Second, it's not gonna be a kind of extrinsic relationship between these sensory powers 
and then the parts of the brain. Rather, what I'm saying is just in the way that Aquinas says the eye is formally organized by the power of vision. Similarly, these internal sense powers, the powers of fantasia, they're like zones of hylomorphic organization, types of attributive, not substantial forms that bring about the organization of these parts of the brain. And the exercise of the power is also involving materially the exercise of these neural systems. So the two pictures are very different. The sensory powers, fantasia, vision, imagination, they're not extrinsic powers acting down on the brain. Rather, the very exercise of those powers brings with it the material exercise of the organs. They're not in any sort of extrinsic relationship. And the brain's not what generates the power of imagination. Rather, the soul, in bringing about a power of imagination, requires both the organization of the brain along with the psychosomatic power. There's a lot more to be said about this, and that's a very hand-waving account. I'm going to slightly hand-wave a little less, but it's still going to be hand-waving in my final section now when I'm going to talk about the way in which we can find an articulation of this looking at the details of the neuroscience, drawing on a, a project, a very well-known and um, fruitful project known as the New Mechanist Approach in Philosophy of Neuroscience and Biology. If we want to fill out some of the details of these biological systems that constitute these psychosomatic powers and operations, we shall find some extraordinary resources in the empirically rich investigations of the new mechanist philosophers of biology, neuroscience, psychology, and cognitive science, such thinkers as Lindley Darden, William Bechtel, and Carl Craver, among many others. Elsewhere, I've argued for the compatibility of hylomorphism with the new mechanist philosophy of neurosciences, so I'm going to take that for granted. But before you jump back and are concerned with this usage of mechanisms, it's important to realize that the new mechanists have a very different conception of what mechanisms are from classical conceptions of mechanisms, which were often fundamentally defined in terms of being against types of formal organization, were against teleology. That's not the case with the new mechanists. It's a much more complicated picture. Many of them are at least perspectivalists, and some of them are realists about teleology, and they all take formal organization realistically or ontically. As I understand it, the Thomas hylomorphism, um, before going to this, I think we need to distinguish some levels of inquiry. So what's philosophical anthropology of a Thomas kind doing? What level of inquiry are the new mechanist philosophers working at? And then what level of inquiry are neuroscientists working at? And distinguishing these three different levels of inquiry. Again, I'm thinking of them as a kind of integrative pluralism, a complementarity of these levels rather than a competition of these levels of inquiry. As I understand it, Thomas hylomorphism aims to provide an ontological framework for understanding inanimate and animate things. Thomas philosophical anthropology appropriates this hylomorphic ontology and its inquiries into the social, psychological, and biological factors that constitute human persons. However, when it comes to the biological details of the sub-psychological systems that materially constitute rational and other animals, these sub-psychological systems are investigated by the special sciences, not by philosophical anthropology. This is where philosophies of the special sciences come in. They provide a fruitful mediating role between the more abstract ontological investigations and the highly detailed concrete experimental investigations of the special sciences. What the new mechanist philosophers provide Thomas hylomorphism then are theoretical resources for thinking more concretely about how the discoveries of neuroscience, for instance, might fit or resist fitting within any of the many rival ontological accounts of human beings. So philosophers like to say a lot of things like neuroscientists say this, but we don't actually go read much of what the neuroscientists actually say. The philosopher of science, they don't just look at one scientific area of inquiry, because a lot of scientists, they only look at their area of neuroscience, not look at another area. If you work in vision research, you probably don't know much about contemporary work in memory. It's just the nature of the discipline and institutionalized pressures to specialize. What's great about these philosophers of neurosciences, they tend to look at large swaths of the history of the development of these inquiries and how contemporary compatible and incompatible research inquiries are going on within these disciplines. So they provide an incredible overview that's very fruitful and helpful for thinking through the literature. So let's take a brief look at how these new mechanisms, I think, help fill out the Thomist um, aspects of our anthropology. The new mechanist philosophy focuses on four features that characterize mechanisms as they understand them. They talk about component entities, component activities, organization, and the phenomenon that is either produced, 
that's underlined by these or that um, maintains some phenomenon by these component entities' activities in their organization. I'm just going to quote the second quote here from Craver. Uh, he says that mechanisms are entities and activities organized such that they exhibit the explanandum phenomenon. If any of you are interested in you know, jumping into this literature, maybe I would read first like a very short introduction on the brain, but Carl Craver's book, The Explanation of the Brain, is a fantastic work. has a great chapter on a field guide to levels and different rival accounts of mechanistic and levels explanations in the biological sciences, but especially in neuroscience. It's a, it's a terrific, very, very helpful book for thinking through levels of inquiry in neuroscience. A phenomenon is variously described as the behavior or the manifestation of a capacity or power of the mechanism as a whole. So for instance, very superficially, the mechanism for protein synthesis, it synthesizes proteins. The mechanism for an action potential in a neuron, it generates an action potential in a neuron. You start with this basic sketch, and then you mechanistically inquire into what are all the stages and processes that are required for that kind of mechanism to produce the thing that it produces. Entities and their causal activities or operations constitute the two kinds of component parts of a mechanism for these new mechanist thinkers. The mechanism studied in neuroscience, for instance, consists of component entities like neural membranes, um, calcium-2 ion channels, um, calcium-2 ions, intercellular molecules, vesicles that contain neurotransmitters, and so forth. And all of these component entities, they causally interact with other component entities through diverse kinds of causal activities. Activities like opening, diffusing, docking, fusing, phosphorizing, and priming. What's crucial to new mechanisms philosophy is its realist, or its ontic account of organization. To quote Craver, there are no mechanisms without active organization, and no mechanistic explanation is complete or correct if it does not capture correctly the mechanism's active organization. Importantly, mechanisms and their organizations are interlevel. So you have the, you have the illustration of the, the basic system of a mechanism there. If you, you have the top, the phenomena, the sighing, the psychological activity in the description, but that sighing activity is itself constituted from the organization of those, those fine components that are lower in the, in the level, and you've got four fine components. There'd obviously be more than that. And they're gonna be related to each other in a type of temporal, spatial, active organization. And if you knock out any one of those components, it's gonna be um, inhibiting um, to the exercise of the phenomena overall. But each of those components themselves are also constituted of a mechanism. So you could take any one of those phi one or phi two and it's phying, and those themselves are gonna be underneath of them nested by another interlevel kind of mechanism that's composed of its own component entities with their own component activities. So you knock out one of those and that's gonna trickle or cascade all the way up to inhibiting the mechanism as a whole because of lower level down. So if you have some problem with protein synthesis, it's gonna cause problems of what can actually occur on the, the neural membrane, and that's gonna bring about inhibits to what the neuron itself can do, and if there's an, a, a systematic inhibition to all these different neurons, that's gonna break down a neural assembly or a network of neurons that work together, and if there's an inhibition to this neural system, it's gonna cause problems for whatever psychological activity is also itself built out of and dependent on all those component entities working as they should. So there are quite a few quotes that I have on there for Craver, from Craver, but um, I'm going to skip through them, or skip over those quotes, and go to pulling this all together. Um, I, that was a worse than a flashcard run through of the incredible rich details that are available in the New Mechanist account. But you can see why a hylomorphic thinker would be attracted to this approach to thinking about the philosophy of biology, the way in which organization is critical, the way in which the components are necessary, but not just the components. You need to think about the organization realistically, and that if you knock out or change the organization, it's going to undermine the, what it can actually produce, and that the higher level is not reducible to the components. What the whole can do are causally engaged in types of inputs and outputs and interactions that the parts themselves cannot do, but yet the whole also can't do it independently from the components themselves. Given my earlier Thomistic sketch, of the way in which psychosomatic powers are constituted from the formal organization of biological systems, like neural and glial systems of the brain. I hope that a relatively straightforward image of the relevance of the new mechanist philosophy of neuroscience to Thomas anthropology is slowly coming into view, or maybe coming into view way too quickly. 
The view I'm suggesting is this. Despite the fact that Aquinas' account of the internal senses in the brain, it definitely needs to be revised and developed in light of 700 years of enormous advances in psychology and brain science. Nevertheless, Aquinas' anthropology presents a philosophically rich account of the way in which various sensory cognitive and appetitive powers are embodied in organs like the brain. Aquinas' hylomorphic, oh, sorry. This basic hylomorphic framework, I think, remains philosophically defensible, even if we discover that there are important phenomenological, ontological, and scientific reasons that demand we revise some of the more nuanced or subtle divisions of these sentient powers and substitute his ventricle doctrine of the brain with the advances in human physiology, especially those coming from neuroscience. And Aquinas was a strong localist. Like, he really wanted to locate these powers in very specific ventricles. I mean, he just inherited that doctrine from Galen and, and Nemesius and Avicenna. Today, the debates about localism or holism and different types of parallel distributed um, parts of the brain, that's going to be an empirical question. But we can think about these things just as much as networks, complicated systems of networks that different nodes, when it, it localized or connected up with one set of networks of other nodes, does one thing, like a visual process. But when they're connected with another system, they might be involved in a memorative process. So we also don't need to think overly localized way in which Aquinas did about how these psychosomatic powers are embodied in the nervous system. But it's also important to see the way in which this approach is so much different than the emergentist approach. The way in which the emergentist approach is talking about these psychological powers and their relationship to the nervous system. And the new mechanists themselves have actually put distance between their views and various strong emergentist views in the philosophy of mind in a way in which those problems I don't think arise for a hylomorphic account, given the very similar approach that they have to these issues. What's going to be critical, though, is making sure we keep different and distinct the way in which the psychological level of these psychosomatic powers and of these noetic powers are different from the sub-psychological systems. And we don't try to conflate the two. The psychological activities, the rational activities, those aren't going on in the sub-psychological systems of the brain. But it is the case that the brain is necessary as a sub-psychological system for enabling these psychosomatic powers which are constituted from these various systems within the nervous system. So, what I think this sets up for a set of inquiries that we need to look at is we need to think much more about human beings in developmental terms. If we look at developmental cognitive neuroscience, we're going to see the way in which our nervous system, through types of epigenetic factors, through types of activities in our environment, helps our nervous system to develop, which really shows the strong, and Thomas would say, hylomorphically embodied way in which our powers are found in the nervous system. And it's only through their exercise that the appropriate forms of pruning and plasticity that occurs in the nervous system really develops in light of our own embodied psychosomatic activities. We also need to think a lot more about linguistic operations and the way in which these have a strong neurological basis as well. And that's going to draw our attention to that. The third and last point I wanted to make is that the difficulty here is all scientific experimentation involves the operationalization of different concepts, concepts that come from different philosophies of mind. So when we approach the scientific literature, look at Damasio's somatic marker hypothesis, um, if we look at um, any of these uh, Ledoux's work on the emotional brain, all of the scientific literature is already interpreted in terms of a conceptual framework that is typically fundamentally at odds with the hylomorphic conceptual framework of Thomism. So if we want to draw on the scientific literature, it's not easy. All of it has been already interpreted systematically in a set of conceptual frameworks that are fundamentally at odds with a hylomorphic one. So the difficulty is, and it's an enormously daunting task, is we have to conceptually interrogate all of the scientific literature to try to think through how does Thomist or an Aristotelian interpret this certain neuroscientific findings. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much for your attention. Do you think that this hylomorphic view can accommodate 
a view in which the origins of initial organic life could be resolved out of or emerged out of purely non-living processes? Or do you tend toward the view that the, the metaphysics or the ontology of living systems requires a new special creation? Um, maybe we don't have to answer that question, but I wonder if you have thoughts on that. When it comes to the origins of life, I mean, so we're not talking about the human soul. We're just talking about basic forms of animation. I mean, I want to, I'm going to be inclined to think Thomistically about the way in which some of the way Lonergan approaches this and thinking about emergent probability. And um, I want to think about the way in which there's a complex nexus of a range of causal influences for a potency and potentiality that's already there that it is going to be itself sufficient for it. So it's not the physical systems on their own. The understanding of what, how we're even understanding those physical systems is already broadly hylomorphic when we're even thinking about this in the first place. So the conceptual resources for how we ask the question is going to be different than someone who doesn't have those conceptual resources. And I'm going to be inclined to say that let's give this picture the best, the best that we possibly can to try to answer that question. There could be latent potencies in, in, in non-living things that could be explicated through. Yeah. So I'm going to really insist on that the potentiality is already there. It's not as if we're trying to generate something immaterial from material a nexus of material potentialities. We're trying to, we're trying to generate or, or bring about the generation of something that's fully a hylomorphically physical being with no disembodied powers. And we should, I think, want to say that the matter, the material systems, the hylomorphic physical systems have that potentiality so long as there's sufficient um, nexus of causal powers to bring it about. Uh, just related to Paula Wright's question, to better understand the contrast with the emergentist hmm. account. Um, what struck me is thinking of Aristotle, Generation of Animals, when he talks about the necessity for the heart to be present, or the sensitive soul to, um, to be present, it seems. Um, I can't remember the detail of Aristotle's view, but it seems that in some ways that resembles a emergentist thing, where once the matter comes together sufficiently through yeah, so the differences there are that there's already the kind of animating form in the matter that's the reason for why there's a heart being generated, but that's not true of the emergentist picture, right? The emergentist picture is just a purely physical system with physical properties, and they are themselves bringing about their own organization without substantial form. And then that's itself generating some separate extrinsic property or some separate um, um, immaterial substance that's being generated from the organization. But in the Aristotle case, if you're thinking about like kind of a delayed hominization or at least a delayed, I'm not sure if that's what you have in mind is something like that. But the idea is that there is already a sentient soul that's bringing about the organization of the matter such that, but you were thinking about Aristotle in particular. Yeah, that makes sense. With Aristotle, with the generation of animals, it seems... He's thinking about the vegetative soul, though. Right. Bringing about a sentient. But in any case, it's the same sort of principle that applies, is that why, why is... Because otherwise you have a, a story that's sort of like vitalism. And emergentism and vitalism are going to be very similar in some respects, is that you have a physical system that maybe generates a vitalist principle, and then the vitalist principle acts back down on it to animate the system or do something like that. But that's not what's going on in the Aristotelian context. It's, there's already an animating form there of the vegetative soul, right? And that's bringing about the generation of the organs that are sufficient for sentience. And Aristotle's locating the, the Aristotle prior to Galen, they're, inter, they're um, localizing sentient awareness and motor integration in the heart, mostly because of anatomical reasons. The Aristotle an anatomy for the Aristotelians had not yet sufficiently distinguished between uh, blood vessels and nerves. And so Aristotle's locating all sensory integration and motor integration in the heart because it seems that all of these things are just part of a cardiovascular system. By the time of the anatomy of Galen, they're making the differentiation between the nervous system, which is being fed up through the spinal cord, and it, Galen thought into the ventricles of the brain. And so Galen has to make some new introductions to Aristotelian thought to think about the way why in which the psychological or the sensory motor integration is going on in the brain rather than going on in the heart. I mean, that's really the biggest surprise to Aristotelians, is to shift from a hylomorphic model that takes sensory motor integration in the heart to then moving it up to the ventricles of the brain. 
I mean, our shift from the ventricle doctrine to the neuron doctrine is really small potatoes from the shift from the organ of the heart to the brain. And that hylomorphism can sustain that sort of radical anatomical change, but still keep its, its basic theoretical framework intact, I think is, is, is telling. Uh, is, is it initial to So emergentism is said in many ways. There's forms of emergence that are just talking about epistemic emergence and the way in which something arises is a more complicated system and we won't be able to describe it in terms of the explanatory resources we have at a different level. Then there's types of ontological emergence. And I'm specifically talking about the major dominant views of emergentism in philosophy of mind. And all of them consider themselves to be strong emergentists. And what I'm giving in terms of property and substance dualism, or sorry, property and substance emergentism, the substance emergentism is a kind of substance dualism, um, but it's a kind of substance dualism not where the substance of the mental existed prior to the physical system that produced it. So uh, the new mechanist philosophers will refer to a type of a mechanistic emergence for talking about the way in which the whole is more than the sum of its parts, but they are very careful to distinguish this from the types of strong emergentism that I've been describing in the philosophy of mind. And I'm, I'm willing to concede the point that hylomorphists are endorsing a form of emergentism. But I'm saying, be careful, because language is pragmatically useful. And some of these words already have very detailed meaning. People who either work in the special sciences and use emergentism, versus the way that physicists use emergentism, versus the way some people that were interested in philosophy of science use emergentism. But if we're trying to get into the game of philosophy of mind, and we're describing our view in terms that are systematically understood in a different way by philosophers of mind, we're really unlikely to communicate effectively what we in fact mean by our view. And we're likely to just be receive caricature objections because they're going to assume our view functions in the same way that strong emergentism works in philosophy of mind. So you're right, there are a lot of different ways of using emergentism, and there's a completely legitimate sense in which Aristotelians or hylomorphists are defending a version of some version of something that emerges out of its parts. But I would just say, Thomists have a language for this themselves, from Aquinas. I mean, we talk about um, eduction. And we should really speak more using our own conceptual resources and make distinctions, rather than trying to draw upon a, a term that's out there in the literature, but it's used in so many different ways. We're, we're almost as likely to mislead as we are to really articulate clearly what we want to say. I'm going to take uh, just one more. Is there somebody? So let me try to give a simple answer that's not going to be very satisfying. <laughs> One is that it's important that we get, we try to recognize when we ask these questions that there's not a monolithic account of what analytic philosophy of mind and perception is. There are a range of rival views in analytic philosophy of mind for thinking about philosophy of perception. And a range of different issues in which they are committed or unaware that they're committed to a lot of other issues in metaphysics that are going to make those differences. So let me just say some people who work in philosophy of perception that I think are going to be more fruitful allies for thinking about this. I think people broadly speaking who are interested in types of disjunctivism in analytic philosophy of mind and perception, those are going to be helpful individuals. I think some of the work on empirical knowledge that John McDowell has done is very helpful. I think a lot of the work not in the embodied cognitive scientist people, but rather the radical embodied cognitive science 
and I don't have time to spell out what the difference is between the two of them, but people like Anthony Chibnero or um, Daniel Hudo or um, some of the phenomenologists like Sean Gallagher who use um, phenomenology but in a more analytic kind of context. Someone like Alvin Noe is also going to be helpful. So that's a, and then some of the Wittgensteinian thinkers like Peter Hacker, um, PMS Hacker's work on perception. Those are going to be analytically minded thinkers that I think have a lot in common, but you're not going to find in anyone, any one of them, or even all of them, you're not going to find all the network of issues that you really need, I think, to articulate a contemporary Thomas view or an Aristotelian view of, in the philosophy of perception. We'll break now and we'll come back in about 10 or 15 minutes. Please help me thank Professor Dunham.